Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Great to have your company on Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me every week, because we just can't seem to get rid of him, is astronomer Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hello, Andrew. Yes, I'm hanging in there. Even though, um, you know, a lot of people would probably like to get rid of me, actually. <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're certainly not in that, that group. We, we, love right. you, we love you dearly. <laughs> we really Good. do, yes. Um, now, uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. We've got um, some, some very interesting things, one being uh, that of Jupiter's moon Europa, which uh, continues to fascinate uh, astronomers and scientists. And uh, things are starting to get uh, pretty exciting uh, in that realm because um, you know, they're talking missions and all sorts of things. We'll, we'll have a look at that. Uh, and they've also discovered that exoplanets are having their atmospheres ripped off by their parent star, and one wonders, well, you know, could that happen to Earth? And and um, a couple of quirky little things happening in space. Rocket seeds, and that doesn't mean you plant a seed and next day there's a rocket in your backyard. Uh, and we're going to run a marathon in space. Well, not you and me, Fred. I I don't feel very confident in that regard, but somebody is. Uh, so we'll we'll talk about that, but first let's uh, let's look at Europa now. F- first of all, Fred, just give us a bit of an idea of uh, of this amazing moon Europa and why it's so fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's um, one of the four moons of Jupiter that were discovered by Galileo back in early 1610. And, well, he called them the Medician moons because he, he had his eye on sponsorship, uh, as, as you do. Um, uh, the, um, the Medici family uh, actually eventually did become his patrons. But he, um, he we call them the Galilean moons. And uh, the, uh, it's about the, I think it's the second biggest one, actually. I can't remember what order they're in. But Europa is... Uh, one of these which has excited great interest among the scientific community ever since it was visited back in the 1970s by uh, the Voyager spacecraft. So uh, we now know that actually three out of the four Galilean moons of Jupiter probably have a similar structure with uh, a rocky core uh, overlain by either a a liquid water ocean or a, a sort of ocean of slush uh, water slush, with on top of that a thick layer of ice. Um, so Ganymede, uh, Europa and Callisto all share this structure. But Europa has... A f- the, the, the curious thing about them, uh, before I go on to Europa, is that they're all completely different, these four moons of Jupiter. Even though three of them are, have probably got the same structure, their surface uh, texture is totally different. 
The fourth one, by the way, is EO, which is the most volcanically active body in the whole solar system. So it is not covered in ice because its its surface is is um, a, a volcanically active. It, it's that's covered in, in sulfur and it's sulfur. That's right. Yes, methane it's, uh, and all that pretty, awful stuff. Pretty ugly place. Yeah. <laughs> but Europa um, fat has fascinated scientists because uh, it's got this whitish surface, uh, an icy surface, but it's covered with this network of brown, brownish cracks or markings, I guess you'd call them, which we now know uh, uh, they, they, they actually relate to cracks in the surface because you can see that the elevation is slightly different uh, where these brown markings are. So uh, the, that's puzzled planetary scientists. Uh, in fact, it was only last year that uh, astro, I guess you could call them astrobiologists, the people who look at the sort of chemistry uh, of, of uh, worlds beyond the Earth as a precursor to life and things of that sort, it's only last year that people really figured they'd worked out what these cracks were all about because uh, it turns out that... Um, we've got really good evidence from from spacecraft that there is this icy crust with an ocean underneath it. Now, that ocean is almost certainly something a bit like brine. It's quite um, brackish water. It's not fresh water mm. uh, because it will have minerals dissolved in its salts and all sorts of things like that. Um, and it is now believed that these uh, markings on the surface of Europa are actually cracks where water has been forced upwards from the ocean. And because of the fact that the, there's no atmosphere on Europa to speak of, you've got this constant bombardment of some atomic particles from the sun. And it turns out that if you put, uh, if you dry salt water, uh, uh, basically so you leave the salts behind and then bombard them with the same sort of radiation uh, as you get from the sun, you get a brown surface exactly like these cracks. Ah. And so the modelling seems to be good. It seems to be correct that we've got a world here with perhaps a 20-kilometre uh, 20 thick layer of ice and, a, and an ocean underneath it. And, of course, as soon as you start talking about large bodies of liquid water in the solar system... Uh, the astrobiologists' ears prick up and uh, they say, well, wherever we find water on Earth, we've got life. Is it the same elsewhere in the solar system? And that is really why Europa is such an interesting world. So now cut to 2016. Sorry, that was the preface. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, kind of figured that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the real story is, uh, well, we're going there. Um, uh, that, there's a bit more to it than that. Uh, two um, sets of... Uh, I guess um, missions are being planned. NASA has plans for missions in the early 2020s um, to to go and explore uh, explore Europa. Uh, probably a, a two pronged mission. One with uh, a probe that will be basically in orbit, possibly around Jupiter itself rather than around just around Europa, uh, because that gives you the scope to make explorations of the other moons of Jupiter as well. So the, the, the orbiter and then possibly a soft lander, a, a spacecraft that uh, would land on the surface of uh, Europa to actually analyse what what we're finding in these in these uh, brown uh, brown uh, markings that yeah. uh, we we believe are cracks where liquid comes up from below the surface. What, wasn't I mean, there talk at one stage of perhaps sending a submarine down below the surface? Actually, Was that you? Actually, um, there is talk of a submarine, but that is for 
Uh, I beg your pardon. That is for Saturn's moon, oh, Titan, okay. which actually has liquid on the surface. It's mm. not water. It's, uh, it is liquid methane and ethane. Uh, it's the only other world in the, that we know in the universe, uh, Andrew, where there is a stable liquid on the surface, the only other world other than the Earth. So Titan, you know, you and I could talk about Titan for hours and probably will do one day. Um, so the submarine idea is for Titan. However, it has been proposed that maybe you could uh, land on the surface of Europa and put a little... Uh, thermonuclear reactor, not a bomb, but something that just generates heat like these RTGs, the radioisotope thermal generators, which are powering the New Horizons spacecraft and the, uh, and the, and the uh, Curiosity spacecraft on Mars. Uh, maybe what you could do is put one of these canisters of plutonium, that's what it is, plutonium dioxide, and just leave it on the ice with instruments to measure what's going on. And the heat would then allow this thing just to fall through the ice. And maybe 10 years later, it pops out in the ocean at the bottom. That's one thing that has been proposed. It's not in the proposal that we're talking about today. Uh, that is probably for a long time in the future. Apart from anything else, Andrew, there are kind of ethical issues there. You know, do you want to send uh, something that's highly radioactive down into what you might consider to be the most pristine environment in the entire solar system. Uh, forget the wilderness areas on the Earth. This is a place uh, which has never had any kind of intelligent life um, uh, probing it at all. And uh, so, you know, there are, there are questions there that need to be asked. Anyway, uh, to, to cut back to the current story, both uh, NASA and the Europeans, the European Space Agency, are looking at... Uh, the prospects for exploring Europa in the early 2020s. And one of the things that's on the table is an offer to the Europeans to, to sort of be able to hitch a ride on the, on the NASA spacecraft so that they could mount uh, their own uh, orbiter or lander uh, and have it carried to Jupiter by, uh, by NASA hardware and then uh, actually to explore the, uh, the, the, the uh, Europa I was going to say the European environment, and by that I mean the environment of Europa. Well, they're, they're not dissimilar, really. They're not dissimilar, no. So there's too many Europes in this story. Uh, but, it, look, it's very exciting. Uh, one of the uh, things that uh, I know has excited planetary scientists is the idea of the penetrator. And the penetrator is a device that is being pioneered, actually, in the UK. I think there's been about 10 years of developments on this thing. And the penetrator is, is just shaped like a large, um, if you imagine a, a, a big old First World War shell, but the high-tech version of that. Uh, so uh, this is something that uh, is has a, a shell, um, and by that I mean an outer shell, that is sufficiently rigid that when it hits the surface of uh, the ice at maybe a kilometre per second or something like that, it won't just smash up, it will penetrate into the ice, but has uh, special properties in s such a way as what instruments are inside this penetrator don't just get demolished by the impact. Uh, so it's all about the balance between wanting to uh, send something into the ice that will penetrate maybe a few metres into the ice, far enough that you can actually sense the 
um, you know, the, the makeup of the ice, the chemicals that are in there, but not at such a high velocity that you smash everything that's inside it. A very delicate uh, balance between the two requirements. So, um, yes, the reason why we're talking about this now is that there has been a meeting um, in Europe where all these ideas are being put on the table, lots of uh, discussions. There won't be any firm outcomes of that for some time because none of these uh, probes are finally approved by their respective space agencies. But I think it is it really is um, uh, an area to watch. I think we might find, uh, you know, within a few years, you and I will be talking in quite concrete terms about a mission to Europa. Fingers crossed that there's actually something very exciting to discover. Uh, we, we, there is always something exciting <laughs> to discover, and it's usually completely unexpected. Yes, indeed. All right, we'll uh, certainly be talking about that again. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and Andrew Dunkley. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. So let's uh, turn our attention to a little further from our solar system. Now, Fred, we're going to look at exoplanets. These are planets that are orbiting stars other than our own. Uh, we've discovered hundreds and hundreds of them now uh, that we, uh, you know, we first came across them 20-something years ago. Uh, and uh, now we've found that some of them are not in a really good place. And, of course, it makes you wonder if Earth's in a situation that uh, might see this happen one day as well. They're, they're having their atmospheres ripped off. Uh, indeed they are, yes. And look, just to allay your fears, um, this is not going to happen to the Earth. Ah, good. Uh, so, so <laughs> but it's still a very interesting, still a very interesting piece of research. Um, th this is really about uh, stars which have planets orbiting much, much closer than the Earth does to the Sun. Uh, we're at a fairly respectable distance uh, from the Sun, 150 million kilometres. But some of these uh, planets of other stars are much, much closer to their, to their parent uh, star. And the question has really long been a moot point as to whether if you have a planet, a kind of um, like a gas giant, uh, something like um, a small Jupiter or, or Saturn... Uh, with an atmosphere, but it's orbiting very, very close to its parent star, does the atmosphere survive? Because what you've got is not just the heat of the star, but basically this higher energy radiation that comes from the star, the, 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 the particles. We, we feel the wind of particles from the sun. We call it the solar wind. Mm. But if you're right next to a, a star, um, particularly some of the more active types of stars, then you've got this... this it's a, like the solar gale. You've got this blowing bombardment of subatomic particles. And the theory has always been that that will strip away the gaseous layer of these nearby, of the planets orbiting near the, near the, near the parent star. I, I suppose you could look at Mercury as a local example. Yeah. Maybe Mercury has undergone this. Exactly, mm. exactly so. Uh, because um, the work that... Um, that has been presented in the last uh, few weeks uh, actually gives confirmation that that has happened and the way that confirmation has been uh, gathered is using a technology i wonder if you've ever heard of this uh, andrew a technique called astro seismology i have actually um, yes. yeah good good <laughs> probably heard about it from me yeah i'd say so <laughs> 
Um, the, so asteroseismology is, as its name implies, it's looking for star quakes, um, vibrations in the surface of a star. Uh, we know that all stars pulsate at some level. Our sun does it. It's uh, vibrating, it, almost ringing like a bell. Uh, with a period, if I remember rightly, for the, the sun's principal vibration, it's sort of one vibration every five minutes or so, if I remember correctly. But you can you can actually study these vibrations um, if you can measure the brightness of a star very, very accurately, uh, you can see the effect of a vibration of the star, a pulsation of the star on its brightness, because as a star gets bigger, it actually gets brighter because there's more of the surface area that's radiating the energy. That is the basis of asteroseismology. And what's happened is that um, a group of researchers in the UK, in fact, have, uh, have used the Kepler space telescope data. Kepler, if you remember, a very accurate uh, um, device for measuring the brightness of stars. It looked, it sort of stared at 100,000 stars, principally looking for reductions in the brightness of the stars as, as their planets cross the, uh, the star's surface, what's called a transit. That's how we've discovered most of the extra solar planets that we know about. Mm. But because the Kepler measurements were so exquisite, you can also do astro-seismology with it. And it's, uh, astro-seismology has this beautiful uh, outcome that it provides, that just looking at the way a star vibrates, provides you with all kinds of direct measurements <clears throat> of the fundamental parameters of the star, including its age, um, its absolute physical size, that there are things that are really difficult to obtain by any other means. So what you can do then is combine your knowledge of these fundamental uh, intimate details of the star with what you know about the planets that are orbiting the stars. And it's from that work that uh, the deduction has been made that you, uh, you characterize the host star and that lets you determine exactly the size of the planet going around the star. And by doing that, you can actually uh, confirm this theory that these planets have lost their atmospheres. You know the mass of the planet um, and once you know its size, you know what it's made of. And the idea that atmospheres have been stripped away uh, has now been pretty well proved. So um, the, the, the bottom line with this, um, and I'm just going to quote uh, one of the authors of this paper. He's from the University of Birmingham. Well, it, uh, actually, he's got a lovely comment. He said, for these planets close to their parent stars, it's like standing next to a hairdryer turned up to its hottest setting. And, well, I, I don't necessarily need to use a hairdryer very much these days, <laughs> but uh, I can imagine what that will be like. But he also says, um, and this really summarises it, our results show that planets of a certain size that lie close to their stars are likely to have been much larger at the beginning of their lives. Those planets will have looked very different. And that's really the, the, the importance of this study because it lets you see something about the way planets have evolved through their own history. And going back to your comment a few minutes ago, that is uh, very important for our understanding of our own solar system. Maybe, yes, maybe Mercury once had an atmosphere. It certainly doesn't have one now. No, it's, um, it's one of the more intriguing planets to look at when you uh, when you get up close and personal with it uh very hot on one side very cold on the other kind of how i cook but um yeah it's uh, it's it's an amazing little planet 
Uh, we will certainly be um, talking more about exoplanets in weeks to come, come because we just keep finding more and more of them, Fred, and they're fascinating. Indeed, mm. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now we're going to talk about a, a couple of, oh, I suppose you'd call them quirky little things that are happening in space. Uh, rocket seeds. Uh, and it's not planting a seed and growing a rocket. It's, it's certainly got a lot to do with seeds, though, and they are rocket seeds. Uh, we're also going to run a marathon in space, which um, doesn't thrill me at all. Running is just something I've avoided since high school, Fred, and uh, I will continue to avoid it. At all costs. <laughs> but first, up, rocket seeds. Now, these are actual rocket, as in the, the um, vegetable, lettuce, whatever you want to call it, being taken into space. Or they've already been in space, I think. Uh, they have, that's correct, mm. yeah. So uh, the, uh, what I love about this is this is a collaboration between the Royal Horticultural Society's Campaign for School Gardening and the UK Space Agency. <laughs> so it's a great, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. It's great stuff. Uh, what's happened is that um, the, uh, the, the, the programme to get these uh, school gardening seeds uh, grown uh, in school gardens has uh, taken a, a, a leaf out of the book of the UK Space Agency by wanting to do experiments on them. And what's happened is that a set of rocket seeds, as you said, have been sent to the International Space Station um, and they were there in space for six months. Uh, they came back to Earth in March by uh, actually Scott Kelly, who was uh, at the time the commander of the space station, uh, and have been packaged up and uh, have now been sent to 8,500 schools in the UK. Uh, and I think a few children's clubs and other stuff where the you know, people have signed up for the, uh, to, to do this experiment. So what you've got, what you get when you take part in this is two packets of seeds, one is a red packet, one is a blue packet. Ah, <laughs> and, so, this, so this is the why factor. Why did they do this? Well, yeah, I, I look, I, I guess it's so... That, I'm um, guessing the red seeds, blue seeds, some are from the space mission and some, right. are, some yes. are from Earth. So that, That's right. So, hmm. so you've got um, uh, one lot for, that have been in space, the other lot hasn't been in space. Okay. And uh, by the way, every... every uh, Every seed packet has a picture of a rocket on it, as you'd expect. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, so what these school experiments are all about is comparing, um, you know, trying to grow seeds from both packets and comparing whether there is any difference uh, in the seeds that have been six months in orbit from the seeds or what they produce that, that haven't. Um, and it's probably going to reveal... Know, some information that will be of use to scientists because it is a big issue when you think about sending astronauts on really deep space journeys, for example, to Mars. Mm. It's a big issue uh, where, how you produce fresh food. Can you grow food on the way? Um, astronauts, astronaut food, which is freeze-dried, uh, is, is actually, while it's nutritious, it's probably not really terribly exciting. I do remember... Um, one of the astronauts who returned uh, to Earth a bit earlier in the year, in fact, it might have been Scott Kelly himself, uh, all he, what he said he was most looking forward to when he stepped off the 
off the spacecraft that brought him back was a plate of salad. That's absolutely what he wanted. So wow. imagine what it would be like if you could grow your own on a, on a trip to Mars. It's, so, it's pretty sad that you spend that much time in space and all you can muster up is excitement for salad. About salad, yeah. That <laughs> worries me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might mean that you and I aren't necessarily good candidates for space flight. De- definitely not. Anyway. They've, so, you know, the, and the, the great thing is that um, it, it engages schools, it engages kids in, in what's re, what is real research. Um, the, um, uh, the, the ideas that are coming out are, um, are very, very imaginative. Uh, one of the uh, teachers uh, uh, who's taking part in this, uh, uh, this study has reported that some of his kids have predicted that um, when you plant the seeds that have been in space, the stem will grow downwards because they won't know which way gravity is. Oh, and, that's uh, interesting. Rather than growing upwards. Yeah. Stuff like that, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And, Fred, I'm thinking one of the other possibilities is that uh, these, these seeds that have been in space may result in uh, rocket plants that are p- perhaps larger than their earthly counterparts? Uh, look, it's not impossible. And you can kind of imagine that um, if you've got seeds that have been liberated from gravity for six months, they might feel equally liberated when, they, when they're when they planted on Earth. So maybe they will rocket upwards at uh, great speed and, and grow taller than their, their, their terrestrial counterparts. Whatever happens, it'll be interesting to find out. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And and while we're um, talking about weird things that have been done in space, um, marathon running? Yeah, that's right. So one of the big advocates for this uh, this whole business of uh, the, the, the seed experiment is is the British astronaut Tim Peake, who is currently uh, on board the space station, making a big splash in the media, I think, a bit like Chris Hadfield did, the Canadian astronaut who won a lot of hearts with his various renditions of well-known songs. Uh, Tim hasn't resorted to that, but one of Tim's hobbies is a long-distance running. In fact, he... Um, Back in 1999, he ran the London Marathon in a time of, if I remember rightly, I think it was three hours and 19 minutes, 42 kilometres of running. It's, I have to say, Andrew, this is not my idea of a good time. Uh, I, I was never a long endurance runner. Yeah, well, um, you know, that's in, about as much fun as you know, look, looking forward to lettuce after six months yeah, in space. That's right, yeah. Sorry, just, yeah, the way, but, just the way it is. Well, that's that's right. But Tim Tim is um, a dedicated uh, athlete, and um, what he's done. So he ran the London Marathon back in 1999. He's run the London Marathon in 2016, but on a treadmill on the International Space Station. Uh, his uh, time was actually rather comparable with what he did on Earth. I think three hours twenty three minutes, if I remember rightly. Oh. I don't have the figures in front of me. That's very sweet. very similar. Mm. And that suggests that uh, there is a consistency here that means uh, for Tim Peake, it doesn't matter whether you're running on the Earth or whether you're running in space, you still produce the same time. Uh, the, 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 you, know, you might think that running in space gives you a bit of an advantage because you are, you are weightless. Um, however, to run on a treadmill on the International Space Station you have to be harnessed down to it. You've got to be basically tied to the treadmill because otherwise you just float away. Yeah, because uh, if you weren't, you'd just, as soon as you put your foot on the ground yeah, or the, you, on the you'd treadmill, be off. you'd just shoot upwards. That's right. <laughs> probably bang your head on the ceiling or something <laughs> like that. So uh, you've got to be tied down. And that means uh, that, that there must be a completely different running technique involved mm. uh, when you're harnessed to a treadmill. Nevertheless, 
he did it. He covered the uh, the uh, equivalent of 42 kilometers uh, in a time very similar to what he did in 1999. However, course, however, he, however, he actually ran a lot further than that, technically. I think it was um, 82,000 kilometers that he ran. <laughs> <laughs> because of um, the fact that the space station is moving at almost eight kilometers per second uh, over the surface of the Earth. So, it, uh, so did, he, did he actually run around the planet? Uh, he would have to, yes. He'd go yeah. around uh, about uh, about three, uh, actually twice. Uh, it takes the space station, I think, 92 minutes to make one orbit of, of the Earth. So, so he ran two laps of the planet. He, that's, he ran that's, two laps of the planet. That's, that's amazing right. in itself. It is. Quite <laughs> extraordinary. Mm. Love it. All right. Fred, as always, great to talk to you. Thank you so much, and, and we'll see you next week. That sounds great, Andrew. Always good to talk. Uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And don't forget to stay in touch with us. We love to get your notes on Facebook and Twitter and uh, write some reviews and tell your friends, spread the word. Uh, the, more, the more the merrier. We always have fun with this, and we hope you do too. See you next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.
Okay, we checked all four systems and seeing with a go. Space Nuts. From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.